All right. Well, welcome tonight. I know we've got some folks joining us by live stream, and we will also be, of course, posting the video at notbyworks.org and the audio at our podcast channel. But uh, tonight is just an opportunity to ask questions and uh, dialogue a little bit about anything prophetic. Uh, and honestly, I won't turn down any question about theology. I'm an easy mark in that regard. But the idea here is a Prophecy Night Q&A, so we want to just uh, see what questions you might have. And uh, before we get started, let me, um, let me make a couple of quick announcements uh, here. We are back on YouTube. You may have noticed that uh, about two weeks ago, we finally decided to start posting our daily podcasts and other videos to YouTube again. Um, and, you know, we have quite a following there, had for years. Then during the COVID pandemic, um, we got 11 different videos uh, canceled because I had the audacity to cite the Journal of the American Medical Association and um, Lancet and other top reputable medical journals. And I guess you can't do that anymore. So, uh, but we're back on and, uh, you know, praise God for that. We're reaching some more people that maybe had not uh, heard about us or, you know, forgotten about us. So if you're a YouTuber, you know, you can check that out every day. The, video, the podcasts are posted there. We're still on Rumble. That's our kind of our primary channel. Um, yeah, we have our premier subscriber, and we uh, invite a guest in once a month to take your questions, kind of like we're doing tonight, but it's over Zoom. It's been a huge success. It's for our premier members. Uh, it's a small monthly fee, uh, or you can uh, pay annually and get two months free. You can cancel at any time. Lots of other benefits besides just the monthly Q&A, uh, but you, know, you get to meet great guys like Mondo Gonzalez will be joining us in February. We've got Lee Brainerd lined up after that and, and several others. We've had uh, Bill Salas. We've had uh, Pat, Patrick Wood, Randy's joined us sometimes. So check that out if you're interested. Uh, this week, uh, we started out Monday with, or yesterday, I should say, with uh, Lee Brainerd uh, talking about imminence on the accelerator. Really great discussion. I love that guy. He's just such a gracious man, so knowledgeable. He's just brilliant in the original languages and in theology. And so we talked about what does imminence mean and, and how can imminence mean at any moment, and yet we still look at the signs of the times and think it's getting closer, which it is. And so you need to listen to the podcast to kind of talk about how we, or see how we solve that tension. This morning I was on Stand Up for the Truth. Uh, we talked about God's Word, living, active, and a light to our path. So if you haven't uh, listened to that yet, you can check that out uh, when you have time. Uh, we leave Thursday for uh, the first of a couple of road trips coming up. Uh, we'll be going down to Lake Charles, Louisiana. I'll be speaking the 4th through the 6th at Victory Baptist Church. It's our second opportunity to be there over the years. Great group of people. If you're in that area, come see us. Uh, we will be posting those videos uh, at the website eventually, but uh, I don't think it's going to be live streamed. Uh, and then uh, we'll be back here for a couple of weeks, and then we hit the road for a longer trip. We'll start out in Atlanta, Georgia at North Star Family Church, then go from there to the uh, Orlando Prophecy Summit. And I encourage you, if you haven't already, to go to prophecywatchers.com and sign up for their live stream ticket because you get to listen to all 16 or 18 of the speakers. Uh, you have six months to listen to them. It's incredible price for, for what you get. Um, if you're not able to go in person, um, but that's uh, February 29th through March 3rd. Then we'll go straight from there to Claremont, where I'll be speaking at Liberty Baptist Church. And then the night of the 10th, we'll head up about an hour north to Sanford Bible Church and be speaking 
there. So lots of travel, lots of windshield time. We covet your prayers for safety. Uh, some of our family will be flying in to help at the bigger conference, and then most of it will be just me and Wendy. Uh, so really looking forward, uh, forward to that. So that's just a rundown on the next couple of months uh, for us, we've got some great speakers lined up. This Sunday, Gary's going to be filling the pulpit at Plum Creek, uh, Sunday, uh, both services Sunday morning. Uh, we've got Brad Maston's going to be here in March. Uh, Fred's going to be speaking one Sunday. Uh, we've got some other guest uh, speakers lined up as well. So um, if you're a local, if you're here at, at Plum Creek, uh, you know, please come out. You'll be blessed by the services uh, while I'm on the road. All right, with that, let's uh, let's dive in. Um, you know, we'll we'll start with your questions, and um, and then I've got some from people that wrote in, but we'll just see where the conversation takes us. So, what's on your mind tonight? Who's going to be first? It needs to be a very profound, well articulated, brilliant question to set the tone for the rest of the night. Okay. So now nobody's going to raise their hand. But. Okay. Oh, good. All right. Here we go. Um, in the, uh, I think it's Genesis 6, verse 4, it mentions that Nephilim were and are. I don't know. I forget the, the I can't quote it. But uh, what sign is there of Nephilim now? If what I'm thinking, that's giants and men of renown and so on. Yeah, so you're talking about Genesis 6-4. And the, uh, the question is, uh, Genesis 6-4 says that the, there were in that day and also after the flood, Nephilim present. So Nephilim uh, are uh, commonly called giants, although I've heard some scholars try to make the case that it didn't necessarily mean giant, but when Scripture refers to them, it was giants, like the giants in the land when they went in uh, to Canaan. Um, so the Nephilim in Genesis 6 were the offspring of the unholy union between fallen angels and human women. So Nephilim are hybrids, which is why they're not human, they're not redeemable, they're not made in the image of God. They're a, a product of the union between fallen angels and uh, women. And in that culture, in that day, I mean, these fallen angels appeared as, you know, these very, you know, beautiful and, you know, we, we know biblically and, and, and in terms of our angelology that angels, good and bad, can manifest as human beings and take on human form. That's a, that's a no-brainer. We saw that in Lot's day. We see that mentioned in uh, Hebrews um, when, when the Bible says, be careful to entertain a stranger because it might actually be an angel. So the issue of an angel uh, manifesting and taking on human form, it's more than just manifesting, it's taking on, shape-shifting into a human form. Is, there's no problem theologically with that, as bizarre as it sounds. Uh, but having done that, they then courted uh, these uh, ancient uh, women whose uh, uh, fathers were quite happy for their daughters to go with these beautiful you know, men. They weren't really men. They were angels, fallen angels. But the product of that union was a race of hybrids called the Nephilim. And it, in fact, it's because of that unholy intrusion, and Jude later uh, says, call, refers to them as men, uh, these angels who, who left their proper domain, right, and committed sexual sin in the same way that the people in Sodom and Gomorrah did. So we, we have no question that this happened, uh, but God was so angered uh, by it that he, uh, 
you know, he, that's what he brought on the judgment of the flood for. So the question, obviously, that, that scholars have tried to answer and theologians have wrestled with for, for years is how could you have a flood destroy everything except for what's on the ark, and yet the Bible says there were still Nephilim afterwards? Well, uh, and is this the same question that you had pretty much? Or I'll let you follow up afterwards if there's more clarity needed. Um, so uh, there are actually multiple ways that, that don't violate Scripture that we could have Nephilim survive the flood. But before I answer that, let me get to your other question, which was, what signs are there that they exist today? Well, we actually have incontrovertible evidence, uh, skeletal evidence and archaeological remains. L.A. Marzulli and, and Mondo Gonzalez have done an, an exceptional uh, job on this for years, uh, Steve Quayle and others. We may not agree with all of their uh, uh, theology. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I agree with Mondo on almost everything. I want to be Mondo when I grow up. But, you know, I can't guarantee it. But, um, but, you know, regardless of what other differences we may have, the fact is these guys have been on the cutting edge of studying this, and we have hard evidence uh, that these exist. There's even been some evidence that they're still walking around today. Uh, and then you get into the more sort of subjective evidence of people um, you know, seeing uh, strange things with, with, with the eyes, and some of that is a little bit sensational, and I wouldn't take that to the bank, but there's no question that they exist today, and as far as how that could happen, given the flood, well, first of all, remember what these creatures were. They may have looked human, but they weren't. They were hybrids. They were part demon or evil angelic celestial being and part human. The very nature of that is they had demonic, uh, you know, realities within them, which means they could shapeshift. We know angels can shapeshift. Shapeshifting means taking on different materialistic form. So they may look human, but they're not human. In the same way that an angel might look human, but as Hebrews tells us, they're not human. They're, they're angels. So uh, because they can shapeshift, one a theory is that they, when the floodwaters rose, they shapeshifted out of their material bodies into their spiritual bodies and waited till the floodwaters receded, and then they could come back down in their physical bodies, and therefore they survived. We know the flood did not kill all the demons or the fallen angels, right? Um, so, you know, it only killed humans and earthly creatures, not creatures in the celestial realm. So that's one option. The other option, which a lot of people hold, and I'm, you know, intrigued by it. I, I think it's very possible. In fact, I'm inclined to think it's, it's likely. But again, none of these can be proven as to the how. All we know is that for sure they exist. And that is that perhaps, even though the original fallen angels that left their proper domain, cohabited with women, and produced this race of Nephilim, even though they were confined in Tartarus, the New Testament tells us, awaiting final judgment in the lake of fire, never to be released. They're out of commission, right? It's possible that other fallen angels did the same thing. The Bible is silent on that. Now, some people will speculate, well, there's no way they would do it, having seen what happened to their colleagues. Well, look, if punishment for a crime was a deterrent, the world would be perfect, because we've been punishing criminals and evildoers for a long time, and people still commit crimes and commit evil. So I don't know that that argument really carries much weight with me. Um, you know, I think uh, it's very possible that Satan has orchestrated another incursion and maybe has been for 
millennia. Remember, the flood was roughly 2300 or so B.C., so we've come over 4,000 years since that event. Um, and, you know, so you've got, you've got Nephilim afterwards. The text is clear on that. Um, now, fast forward to today. What we have today are at least one uh, presence of Nephilim, in the, and that would be the descendants of the original Nephilim, because if I'm right that they shape-shifted, those Nephilim shape-shifted, survived the flood, well, they're still going to be keep, keep procreating, and every one of their offspring is going to have tainted DNA. They're not going to be human. They're going to be, um, be Nephilim. Over the centuries, uh, that Nephilim DNA is going to become tainted and more and more tainted and more and more tainted to where they might not be as tall, they might not be as ferocious, they might look more like human, but they're still not human. If you're not 100% human, you're not human, right? So, I mean, I can, you know, I can get some Frankenstein scientist in the laboratory to mix a rat with a human being, and it might be 99% human, but if it's 1% rat, it's not human, right? The offspring, you know, uh, that's, not, that's not fully human is not human. So there's that. So they could, there's maybe the descendants of the original Nephilim. But uh, if you hold the view, as some do, that the original Nephilim their physical bodies perished in the flood, and their spirits survive, but they can no longer shapeshift. They're just spirit beings, which the people that hold that view consider them to be demons. That's, they equate them with demons today. So a demon and a fallen angels, according to that view, are not the same thing. As I explain in my first volume of Spirit of the Antichrist, they take a different view. But if that's the case, then the Nephilim could still be around today, by virtue of a second incursion, maybe new or different rather, fallen angels did the same thing again, and we have a new race of Nephilim, you know, a new hybrid race. Any number of ways that we could theologically, without violating any scriptures, uh, think of that Genesis 6-4 could be true. I mean, it is true, but how, how are they still available today? I think there's any number of ways that that could happen. So, so Satan has at his disposal you know, fallen angels, the hybrids, and, you know, then in, from there it gets into more different classifications of, of fallen angels. So, so yeah, right up here. Wait, wait for that mic so that people can hear it online. There we go. Okay, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, so, were the Nephilim also called Raphaim? And did you spell that R A I P H? R A Raphaim R A P H A I M in English, but obviously it's a Hebrew word. Okay. Yeah. So, yes, that's just another um, offshoot of the original Nephilim. Mm -hmm. So they they have, you know, they again they they procreated, so to speak. They had babies from which you know have tainted blood, hybrid blood in them, and and they are called by different names. Yep. Uh, oh man, I'm trying to remember. Um, I think they are uh, the Amalekites, um, but we have several different, um, you know, classifications of the giants, and and they all seem to trace their roots back to the Nephilim. So here we go, right up here. I wanted to ask about the. Um Blood type, I've heard that it's like RH negative was something I saw on the internet. Yeah, so. I, I don't know. That's a good question. The question is, uh, 
you know, identifying Nephilim based on their blood type. I mean, I would assume if you knew what you were looking for, you could tell tainted blood or hybrid blood from pure human blood in the same way that you can tell, you know, pig's blood from human blood. I would assume that, but I don't know. I've never looked into that. So it's, it's possible. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is we don't really know who comprises Satan's army. We know in Ephesians 6 that there are different classifications. We know that he's doing his best to increase the size of his army. Um, but, you know, he, he's got a lot at his disposal. And it is fundamentally a spiritual battle in the unseen realm. And, you know, even if we can see, and I have a whole chapter in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, about uh, paranormal activity, cryptids, uh, shape-shifting, skin-walking, some of those type of things. So there, certainly you can see them. I mean, I think that's, that's Bigfoot and some of these other things, no question about it. Um, a lot of people like to just, you know, dismiss, <coughs> excuse me, dismiss out of hand Bigfoot. Well, that's naive. I mean, you got to look at the data. This has been around for centuries. There's all kinds of documented research. question isn't, does Bigfoot exist? The question is, what is it? And the biblical answer, it's, it's a hybrid dimensional or some type of demonic manifestation. Um, so you can see them, but let's not forget, fundamentally, it's a spiritual un battle in the unseen realm. So, Boy, you guys started right out with, I mean, people that thought, man, I've never heard of Hickson, but I, he seems like a pretty solid Bible guy. I think I'll listen to the Q&A tonight. They've already turned me off. They've already said, well, forget that guy. He's a nutcase. So thank you for that. Well, in case they're still around. Okay, good. When did Luke write his gospel in the book of Acts in relation to, I, I'm not sure what year, so when Peter died or Simon, not Simon. I'm so sorry, Matthew Paul. was the first gospel. John was the last. Um Mark, let me see, Mark was 60, let me look at my Bible here, I've got my notes, um, actually Mark was 60 to 62 if I remember right, let's see, 62 to 64 was Mark, and Luke was, what, 57, so Mark was actually the last gospel, yeah, 57 to 59, so chronologically it's Matthew, Luke, Mark, John. And what which one did you ask about? Luke? Yes. So Luke was 57 to 59. Do we know where he wrote it from? Um I'm sure there's speculation. I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah. Good question. By the way, you, you for those who have modern study Bibles and commentaries, really since about the early 20th century most Bible seminaries started teaching what's called Markan priority or the view that Mark came first and the other writers depended on him and some mysterious document called Q. <laughs> Funny how Q always seems to be involved in controversy. But anyway, um, that's just a, based on higher criticism and based on you know, you know, defying 2,000 years of church history and teaching. There's no question for, for 18, 1,900 years the church understood and the early writers understood that Matthew wrote his gospel first. It was one of the earliest books in the New Testament, 44 to 47-ish, you know, 
45 maybe AD, you know, right around the same time James wrote his epistle. So uh, just be aware that that view is out there. You know, and it's, you know, good people hold that view. It's not like a standard of orthodoxy, but it's, it's almost accepted as, of course, Mark came first, but just know that's not necessarily the case. Ma I believe Matthew came first. Somebody else. I have a question. Do you have any comments about the article or the news report today that Musk says first human has received Neuralink brain implant? Yeah, I saw that. First uh, BCI implant, brain-computer interface uh, implant, Neuralink. Um, we knew it was coming. My comment would be, um, you know, we've talked about this a lot with uh, Shane, our technologist who's on periodically on our podcast. Uh, I think Randy and I have talked about it. I talk about it a lot in the book. Chapter 6 of Spirit of the False Prophet is all about uh, the false prophet and antichrist using technology to control the mind, and part of that is this com this computer chip. So we knew it was coming. Um, it doesn't surprise me. I think there's more to come. It's going to get better and better. The antichrist, you know, he can't. He's not omniscient. He he can't control people like an almighty sovereign God can. So of course he's going to use every means at his disposal. And the Luciferian elite have been toying with the human mind for a hundred years or more. I mean, doing all kinds of unspeakable experiments using chemicals, using psychological warfare. It's only been more recently that we've been able to, you know, drill into the cranium and start using computer technology uh, to accomplish some of those goals. But they want to control the mind for sure. So... Yes. I have another question related, I think. Uh, I've seen my fair share of demon possession in the Americas, south of the border, all the way down to South America, Central America, Mexico. Um, and I, I think it's, we're getting some of it here now, more, the more obvious. And you see that in the trans people and just they're flaked out. Um, but uh, what, what advice? I mean, I, we know believers can't be possessed. But unbelievers, there's, there seem to be a lot of unbelievers in other parts of the world where that's where it's even the lowliest demons are possessing people and throwing them in the dirt and just doing horrible things. But from your experience, from your knowledge, what, how, do we, um, how do we protect ourselves? How do we approach that or yeah. just deal with it in a, in a general way? I think it's a sign of the times. Um, we, we know there's going to be an uptick in phenomena. That's the spirit of phenomena that I talk about in volume two. Uh, and part of that is these demonic manifestations. So first of all, it's certainly true, as you said, that positionally a born-again believer who's been born from above, has the new nature, uh, the, a demon cannot embody that person. They cannot take up residence. So that's a, a theological you know, fact. It's an important understanding of who we are in Christ. But quite honestly, in terms of what that might look like, it's, it's almost a distinction without a difference because a believer who's demonically oppressed and being attacked by demons and influenced by demons, you know, it's, 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 it almost doesn't matter in that moment whether they've actually been whether they're actually an unbeliever who is indwelt and demon-possessed or whether they're a believer who's demon-oppressed, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a difference in terms of how you deal with it. I mean, a demon-possession, as we talked, we talked about back when we were having uh, uh, 
Prophecy Night regularly, we spent a couple of weeks on this, and I went through every example in the, new, in the Gospels of demon possession and drew some examples of what to look for, what does that characteristically look like, and then how do you deal with it. And you deal with it by using the Word of God, the same way Jesus dealt with Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness. Uh, you know, uh, you, you quote Scripture, you quote, you name the name of Jesus, and you remind Satan of who you are, you know, uh, as a believer. You know, he hates believers, right? Uh, Satan, his, his demons are all over the place in apostate churches, you know, liberal, progressive, woke churches that long ago abandoned the Word of God. I mean, if you could see with spiritualizing, you walk in some of those apostate churches, like mainstream denominational churches that are, have homosexual pastors and transgendered pastors and so forth, you'd see demons all over the place. But in Bible-believing churches that are holding forth the Word of Life and quoting Scripture, teaching expositionally, I think it's harder for them to come in here. Uh, so, yeah, I think we're going to see more and more of that. I agree with you that a lot of what we see happening currently with the transgender movement is is part of the gender surrender movement, which I deal with in Chapter 13 of uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2. It's demonic to the core. Um, but there are other manifestations, too. Remember, in Revelation, one of the tools that the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to use to try to control the masses is pharmakeia or, you know, pharmaceuticals or chemicals, right? So, you know, that gets into all sorts of category questions, but I've talked uh, on our podcast before about how I definitely believe evil spirits can inhabit inanimate objects, and that means they could inhabit chemicals, they could inhabit, inhabit material things. So I think there's a demonic... Uh, you know, spiritual component to, um, you know, a lot of these drugs that we're putting kids on. I saw a um, video, maybe you saw it too, here just recently. Someone posted on one of the social media things. It was a mom who's, uh, I think it was a son, is on uh, medication for ADHD, but her son, which that's another whole issue, but in any event, she was her son was on this medication, and she, her son also, I think it was a son, happened to be allergic to dyes. And so every time she got the, the prescription, she had to open the capsules and put them in clear capsules that she bought separately to make sure that there were no dyes in the outer cartridge or, you know, the casing that you put the pills in. Well, she started noticing as she was doing that, that the variance of the actual medicine inside the capsule was sometimes 100% fold different. Like some of the capsules had that much and some of them had that much and there was no quality control. So, I mean, think about that for a second. If, you're, if you think this medicine is needed to solve whatever medical problem you have and you're counting on consistency and it says, you know, 50 milligrams or whatever the capsule is, it clearly wasn't. And so it's just one more example that in, in big pharma, it's all about money. It's not about actually taking care of the patient. Um, I mean... So I forget what, what were the oh, about demon possession. So I think there's a lot of ways in which, you know, evil spiritual warfare rears its head, not just through the traditional, uh, you know, sort of Rosemary's Baby type type thing. So yes, up here. I wanted to ask you about Gemetria. 
They, it's a number that they use the system, and I think it's kind of more a tool of the enemy, isn't it? Gematria, yeah, Gematria. there is there's something to that. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, there's been a lot of studies done on biblical numerology. Um, I mean, you have to be careful because you can, you can take that too far and you can create symbolism behind every single thing. But there clearly, if you read the scripture, seems to be some emphasis put on certain numbers. And so, I mean, Revelation 13 talks about 666 is the number of a man, right? So there's, there's definitely some corresponding realities to the number. Uh, gematria is kind of the science where you assign uh, numeric equivalents to the letters of the alphabet and you, and then, or vice versa, and then you can come out and spell words based on numbers. I mean, some of that is um, just mathematics. It's just, you know, people have used that, you know, remember the whole uh, Bible code, that, that book and that big, you know, stir and buzz that a few, 20 years ago or so. I mean, it, it was scientifically shown that, you know, if you work at it hard enough, you can make the Bible say anything. So you had people saying, well, Shakespeare was in the Bible and this was in the Bible and this, and, you know, and so, I mean, you got to, you got to not take it too far, but I definitely think there's something to, you know, biblical numerology. I'm not an expert on gematria, but I've seen enough to go, yeah, I think Satan, we, we know the Luciferians love symbols and they love numbers and they love particular dates and they love 13 and they love, you know, 7-7 seven, seven and all. They, they, so there's something about it at least that appeals to Satan and his earthly puppets. We, we know that for sure. So somebody else. Okay, up here, or back here first. I didn't see that one. Who are the celestial beings in Second Peter chapter two, uh, verse ten? All right, Second Peter chapter two. Verse ten. Oh, the the they're speaking evil of dignitaries. Is that the is that the, uh, it's, talk, it's talking about these false teachers that were clearly unbelievers because their blackness of darkness forever is reserved, you know, that is reserved for them. But what are you talking about in verse 10 where it says, they are presumptuous, self-willed, not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord? Well, I think it's in NIV where, where this uh, terminology is present celestial beings <clears throat> it's not in the nasb but uh in my bible the nasb it says the people of god but in other translations it talks about celestial beings or glorious beings yeah niv celestial beings uh the kjv called it evil dignitaries and, um, or I mean, dig dignities, and the New King James just kind of followed that with dignitaries. NASB calls it angelic majesties. Uh, let's see what the Greek is, if that gives us any uh, indication. There is a note in the New King James English translation, glorious ones. So it's, it's doxa, yeah, so it's just the word glory. 
Um, so yeah, it's 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 really a hard word because normally doxa just means glory, right? Um, uh, in this case, it's uh, you know it's just the noun doxa, dignitaries, glorious ones. Um, so I guess it it different scholars tr and translators translate it differently. Is that talking about powerful people, um, evil people? Um, or it doesn't even have to be evil people, they're speaking evil about them, um, you know, or is it uh, talking about celestial evil people? It definitely contrasts them with angels, right? So these false teachers are pompous and arrogant, and they're criticizing these glorious ones, these dignitaries, whoever they are, but by contrast, angels who are greater in power and might than these false teachers don't bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So I don't know if we can say with absolute certainty that that's a evil celestial being, even though the NIV, you know, kind of assumes that's the case. Um, I'd have to do a more further study on other usage of, of doxa to see if it can ever refer to, you know, an, a celestial being. It could be. All right, somebody else. Okay, a couple. Oh, yeah, we had two up here. Um, Who was first? So when um, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis um, 15, and the pot of fire and the flaming torch went between the pieces of the meat, does that have significance in the end times with... Hmm. Christ coming, destroying with fire, because that is a sign of a covenant, making a covenant, cutting a covenant. But does that have any significance in prophecy in the end times? You know, uh, I, I've never thought about it, so I'm just going to kind of shoot from the hip, but I reserve the right to change my mind. Uh, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a correlation between the two fires there. The Bible talks a lot about God as a consuming fire, and it's not at all, you know, surprising that the earth would be destroyed by fire in the end. It's a refining element. I don't know that it's so much about the covenant as it is about judgment, you know, um, in, in the end times. But there could be a correlation there. I've never really, never really thought about it. But All right, Jim? I'm going to take you to your other favorite subjects, soteriology okay. and uh, hermeneutics. And I'm curious about this being a good cross-reference. I think it might be. We're talking about Romans 9.21, the potter. Sometimes the Reformed crowd uses that as kind of an example and support for their belief. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if the Jeremiah 18.4 is a good cross-reference where it's talking about the clay being marred in the potter's hand. Um, you know, as being like the clay was the marred thing, and then the potter decided to make something else out of it. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't cross-reference those two because I think they're making two different points, um, both of which are true, obviously. Uh, uh, but the the problem with the way Calvinists use nine Romans nine twenty one, all all Paul is saying here is that God is God and He has the right to choose Israel if He wants to. 
you know, that, that's his prerogative. Israel is the, his chosen nation. It's the apple of his eye. Way back 2,000 years before Christ, God picked Abraham, right? You know, he, he, that's just what God did, and that's God's prerogative. And, and, and he's the potter, and the clay doesn't get to say to the potter, you know, why, right? So I think it's just a strong statement throughout Romans 9 through 11 of God's sovereignty. In context, it's relating to Israel. Now, where Calvinists go astray is because they're so obsessed with sovereignty, which we believe in sovereignty, no question. God is a sovereign God. I absolutely get that. Plenty of passages that talk about it. But they, they use this as a proof text that God chose individual human beings for salvation and chose others for hell. And we just don't see that. We see no indication in Scripture of a distinction between the elect and the non-elect in their unregenerate state. Only time election ever comes up is when it's speaking to those who've already been saved. So again, there's a tension there. And Paul says, we don't understand it. At the end of chapter 11, we can't understand it, right? Who has known the mind of the Lord? So we just have to accept it. Uh, I talked to someone about this today by email. You know, it's um, they emailed and said, I'm just having a hard time understanding how anyone can be saved and yet God elects. And I go, well, welcome to the club. <laughs> You're not supposed to understand it. You just have to accept it, right? So, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's an interesting parallel. Both of these last two questions have been good examples of what we call theological synthesis, cross-referencing from one portion of God's Word uh, to the other. And, you know, you're asking the right questions. And, you know, sometimes those cross-references, they're, they're kind of obvious, and sometimes they're a little more obscure. And I, I'm not sure, other than the fact that in both cases, the uh, there's a mention of a potter, I'm not sure there's a theological connection between the two. But Good question. Go ahead. What scripture could you point to that most accurately reflects the gospel? What scripture would I refer to that most accurately, mean, meaning the content of what must be believed to be saved? Correct. Well, you know, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Um, it, it may not say it in ex exactly those many words, but most uh, gospel appeals uh, to belief assume that we know who Jesus is, the one, the Son of God who died and rose again. For example, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Well, what does gave His only begotten Son mean? Sent to die in our place and rose again, right? So He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So uh, it goes to the, the overall gospel message. So, for example, when Acts 16.31, when Paul and Silas tell the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, Jesus Christ had context. It wasn't some unknown, ambiguous, mystical name. It was the Jesus Christ whom Paul repeatedly talked about was crucified and rose again to pay the penalty for sin. Um, you know, passages like 1 Corinthians uh, 1, uh, you know, make this point as well. Um, he, Paul says in verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness. Well, what's the message of the cross? The message of the cross is that Christ came and died and went to the cross to pay our penalty for sins. Uh, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. Um, again, he goes on to say, uh, in the same context, um, 
For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So there it is. That's the message of the cross is Christ crucified, uh, who's a stumbling block to the Greeks. Uh, I mean, to a stumbling block to the Jews and, and foolishness to the Greeks. Um, so I think uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25 really lays it out there. John 3 as a whole, you know, lays it out there. Um, the whole gospel of John starts with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul's uh, statement in, to Timothy that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Um, it's, a, it's an overall message. I don't think there's a particular formula or precise verbiage that, ha, you know, you have to repeat this after me. Uh, in fact, uh, if I can follow up on that question with one of these that someone sent in, uh, give me just a second to find it. Because when I printed this out, I thought, well, this is a good question. Um, yeah, this person said there's a particular movement uh, among Baptists, he says, uh, who try to redefine faith. Of course, Calvinists redefine faith, too. Faith isn't simply believing in Jesus. It's promising and pledging to obey him. Um, uh, the spuria, I mean, the uh, fiducia component that, that they claim as Calvinists. Um, but this person says they're claiming uh, that you, you, when you believe in Christ, you call upon his name um, and that you have to pray a certain prayer. And so they said, you know, how would you respond to this notion of the sinner's prayer, that if you simply repeat this prayer, you're in? I mean, how many of you have been to uh, church services or crusades where, you know, they say, repeat after me, right? You know. You know, I really hesitate to do that. I've done it, and, and I always do it with some qualifications that it's not this prayer that's saving you. It's not these words that are saving you. It's faith. 160 times the New Testament makes it clear it's faith alone that saves. But if you're, if you're trusting in Christ now and you want to, you know, articulate that between you and the Lord, you might say something like this. So you see the difference? One is faith saves you, but the prayer is just sort of a manifestation of, of your faith. But a lot of preachers don't make that distinction, and it's almost like if you repeat these words, you're in. And, and so it's, it's even come to be called the sinner's prayer. And so you'll hear people talk, well, we had four people pray the sinner's prayer last night, that kind of a thing. So um, it's not, there's no formula, there's no verbiage that has to be repeated verbatim. It's simple faith. And what is that faith? It's in Jesus Christ alone as the only one who can save you. Uh, who's Jesus? Well, he's the son of God. He died and he rose again for your personal sins. So, so I could probably come up with some others, but good question. Really good question. Uh, anybody else? Okay, we got a couple back here. Be nice, Dave. want to talk about the red heifers for a minute. Yeah. I know it's, it's coming up in March or April when uh, when they're supposed to sacrifice and have the ashes for that. Is there once that happens is there a certain time when the temple has to be started or is that open ended they can do it any time? Is it is That's a good question. Tied to um, the temple? I wish Mondo was here to answer that. We had him on the podcast if you search our podcast for red heifers he gave us all of those parameters, and he's written a brand new book, by the way, that you can get um, either at Prophecy Watchers or Amazon. 
uh, and he goes through all the parameters. If I remember right, and maybe someone else knows, if you do, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we're inside that window as of last fall. So I think we've, we've, we're in the window where they could sacrifice them. I think so, they have to be under three years old. Yeah, they, they have to. There's, a, there's an ending point for sure. Yeah, I think three years old, that sounds right. But I think it's not, there's no longer a need to wait any further, if I remember right. Uh, does that sound right, Dave? Once the sacrifice is made, does the temple, do they have to focus on the building of the temple within a certain time of that sacrifice, or is it open-ended, it doesn't matter? I see. Uh, I don't think there's any regulations about, so he didn't have the mic, so for our audience, he was asking, once they'd sacrificed the red heifer, is there any uh, you know, rules about how quickly they have to start rebuilding the temple? I mean, I think it's more a factor of, doing the sacrifice, which presupposes a temple. So yeah, there may be an indirect correlation between the two, but I don't think there's any written law that's, you know, because the temple could be started any time, irregardless of the red heifers. It just so happens that right now we seem to have, you know, the best chance for red heifers that we've ever had. Now, does that mean the Lord's going to come back next year? Not necessarily. Anything can happen to spoil the red heifer, right? It's not, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion. Uh, it could sprout a, a gray hair, right? So, uh, but there are just so many things, aren't there, converging right now that make us think, wow. You know, I, I interviewed uh, Leo Homan today, where it's going to be posted later, but, um, you know, he was talking about all that's going on down on the border at Texas. And it's just hard to even make sense of it all. I mean, you want so bad to side with one side or the other. But to me, it's, it's like watching a Super Bowl between, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers and Green Bay Packers. You know, I'm like, I don't even want to watch that. I, I mean, I hope they, they, it ends in a tie and, and, and everybody gets hurt. I mean, not really. But so, to, you, know, you know, you got Greg Abbott, a big-time WEF guy, longtime globalist, uh, listed on the WEF's page as a, you know, with his whole bio. He's not a good guy. Uh, yet he's standing up in this case to, you know, the the federal government and the Supreme Court who inexplicably, I mean, it's we understand why if you understand the powers that be, but from a conventional standpoint, you go, why in the world will the Supreme Court, you know, intervene and say a state can't keep murderers and terrorists from coming across illegally? I mean, that, that's pretty much government 101. <laughs> keep the bad guys out, Right. Um, I mean, China doesn't have a problem with terrorists coming across their border. I wonder how they did it. I mean, man, a bunch of communists figured out how to keep bad guys out of their country. I mean, we can't, though. Um, well, of course we can. And, and, you know, one of the big questions is, why now? I mean, Abbott could have built a, a wall any time he wanted. He could have stood up any time he wanted and put that razor wire not just across that one small area. He could have put it across the whole border if he wanted. Anytime. Nobody was stopping him. And by the way, as Leo pointed out, the Supreme Court's not stopping him now. This is a point that's lost on a lot of commentators, uh, although some have uh, pointed this out. But the Supreme Court just ruled that the federal government has the right to go in and take it down. It did not say anything about whether Texas has the right to put it up. And so we're going to enter this phase where, you know, 
uh, uh, Abbott's going to put it up, and maybe the government comes in and takes it down. He said, fine, I'll put it up again. And it's just this, you know, insanity. Of course, what's interesting is the Customs and Border Patrol, a federal agent, a federal agency, has said, we're not going to get up there and cut that wire down. So now they're kind of in your face to Biden, and it's just all, it's just confusing, and it's all a side show, a freak show. I mean, if we wanted to put up a wall, we could put up a wall. It's not that hard. You know, we got plenty of know-how and technology and resources. I mean, if we can spend trillions of dollars to, in a few months, get out to market an experimental vaccine for a SARS virus that we, in, after 20 years, never could find a vaccine for SARS-1 because as you know, doctors that are brave enough to speak the truth and these medical journals that I cited say, you can't have a vaccine for a SARS virus, but let's just say you could. Here the government in just a matter of months poured trillions of dollars and manpower and science knowledge and all this stuff and managed to rush to market this these vaccines. If we can do that, you don't think we can build a brick and mortar wall? I mean, it's I mean, people have been building walls for millennia. This isn't, you know, this isn't rocket science. So don't buy the the rhetoric and the narrative that somehow there's good guys and bad guys and I think it's just one more example of fomenting unrest and you've got the big trucker convoy. I haven't kept up on what the latest on that is, but you've got things coming to a head and maybe this is one of the tipping points that they use to create, you know, civil unrest. But on its face, it's just silly that, you know, that the Supreme Court would say a state cannot defend its border. I mean, that's absurd. And, and by the way, we can now thank Trump for the death shot and the Supreme Court ruling that a state can't defend its border because it was Amy Coney Barrett that cast the deciding vote five to four. She and Roberts, the two conservatives, siding with the two liberals uh, to pass that uh, vote. So thank you very much uh, for nominating uh, Amy Coney Barrett. All right. See, I had to get my Trump jab in there. Sorry. Um, all right. Anybody else with, with a question? Could you please explain the difference between an oath and a covenant? Ooh, I'm not sure I can uh, theologically. Um, yeah, I'm not prepared to answer that. Oath and covenant, I, I'm sure there's a technical difference, but I've never really looked into the context and the root uh, of each one. I know passages that use both, but I've never really taken the time to, to think about the distinction. I'm No, I'll, wait, I'll repeat it. You stay there, Gary, and then I'll just... Well, you're already here now. Man, you're fast. We're studying that right now in our covenant study with precepts. And as I understand it, an oath is just between two people, an oath. A covenant is a blood covenant. So there has to be some kind of sacrifice. That's why we are in the new covenant with Christ. And the old covenant, was, like the Abrahamic covenant, was made by God. And Abraham had to accept it, but the oaths are usually between men. That's the way I understand it. I hope that's yeah, that's right. possible that an oath is is human and a covenant. Uh, but I would I would I know this: a covenant uh, has to be ratified, and and a covenant with God is ratified by blood. Uh, and so we see that with the Abrahamic covenant, um, the 
it, it's re, you know, re-ratified or you know, brought up. Uh, let me see if I can find the right slide here. Let's see. There we go. So, uh, you know, the Abrahamic covenant we know was ratified with blood. The land covenant in Genesis 15, the Davidic covenant, obviously, and then the new covenant was ratified at the cross. That's why Jesus said just hours before he was betrayed, uh, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood." But that doesn't mean it's been inaugurated, right? So, so I would differ with the view that we're living in the new covenant today. We're not. So the new co- the whole covenant program, as you see comes to fruition in the kingdom. That's when it's inaugurated. So we're, we, it's all set up. It's all been ratified. It's all in place. But it won't begin until Christ comes back. Now, I know that might sound shocking to people who've been taught for 2,000 years, especially since the Roman Catholic Church, that the church is the new covenant. But as you see on this chart, the church is, the church is not the new covenant. It's a mystery. It's a new work something undisclosed in the Old Testament. When you look at the passages on the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, for example, nothing like what they describe is happening today. Uh, For example, Jeremiah says, when the New Covenant's in force, no one will need to teach their neighbor because everyone on earth will know about Jesus. That's not going to happen until Christ takes the throne. And it flies directly in the face of the Great Commission for the church, which is to go and teach everybody. Uh, You've also got the fact that believers won't sin when the New Covenant's in force. Um, You know, you've just got uh, all of these go together with the the Christ being on the throne and and taking the Davidic uh, throne and the the land boundaries, the expanded kingdom. So I, you know, I think the New Covenant, everything was put in place at the cross uh, and then uh, it awaits fulfillment, you know, when Christ comes back. So I've, I've talked about before how a similar uh, analogy would be with uh, elections. You know, you have an election, then you ratify the vote, but the inauguration doesn't come till later. So normally, like in a presidential election, if we had real presidential elections, you would ratify the vote in November or December, usually early December, but the inauguration isn't until January. So we're living in between the time when God's covenant kingdom promise has been fully ratified. It's ready to go. It just hasn't been inaugurated yet. But anyway, that's a great question. I I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, And, and, you know, Kay Arthur certainly knows a lot, you know, knows a lot of scripture and theology. So that that passes the smell test for me. Oath is between humans. Covenant is between man and and God. Right. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I, I'm sure we, we see, you know, the suzerain-vassal treaty or covenant in the ancient Near East that's between different kings and kingdoms, and that's called a treaty or a covenant in some terminology. So I don't necessarily think it's a hard, fast rule, but certainly there are biblical covenants, like you see on the screen here, that, you know, are of a unique nature, different than just some agreement between man. And there, there are different words for covenants. Barit and and then there's another one um, totally different words yeah I think it depends on the type of covenant yeah yeah I think that's true there are different yeah there are unconditional covenants and there are conditional covenants like the Mosaic covenant that you see at the bottom there that's a conditional covenant it's an if then it's an agreement that if you do this then I'll do this and God says if you do this and keep my law I'll bless you if you don't you're going to face cursings you're going to have trouble that's different from what you see in blue, which are the unconditional covenants, which are simply an I will statement. God guarantees this is going to happen, 
and and that's that's you know the covenant program of God. So, all right, uh, yeah. I had a backup question. Just <laughs> okay. No, you um, bet. Does angels have a gender? Do the angels have a gender? I know that we you know hear of Michael and Gabriel. Um, we don't hear of female gender, and I'm just wondering. Yeah. So <clears throat> there's two ways to answer that question. First of all. Gender, by its definition, is a biological thing, and it's, it's, you know, they're not biological beings, they're spirit beings. But it is true that in Scripture, you never see a reference to an angel as a she or a female. And, you know, when they manifest, they're males. So we see, you know, the angels in Lot's day that were visiting Lot, and the homosexual men wanted to have them. We see, as you mentioned, Michael the archangel, Gabriel, uh, other angels mentioned in other extra-biblical literature, like I think one is called uh, Uriah. I may have that wrong, but the one that supposedly is guarding Tartarus until the Lake of Fire to keep those fallen angels there. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, a very interesting uh, observation that angels are always referred to as males, but that's not to say that they are biologically gendered as male because they're not biological beings. But when they manifest, they manifest as males. So, now Genesis 6, the, the sons of God, which is a term that means angels, cohabited with the daughters of men, the women, the human women. So. I mean, it appears, so the question is, do we have more than one angel protecting us? You know, this whole guardian angel concept is is interesting. You know, you can, you know, by comparing Scripture with Scripture, you can kind of make a case for that, but I wouldn't die on that hill. I think God sends angels as needed, when needed, where needed, and uh, there's no question that we have biblical evidence that whole legions of angels have been, you know, seen and, and called upon to, to help in certain instances. Um is there one angel that's tasked with protecting me? I hope not, because, man, he would have his hands full. But, uh, you know, it could be. That's possible. Mm -hmm. Okay, back here. Uh, I think it was yesterday in the news they talked about Damascus, and it brought to my mind the destruction of Damascus. And I was wondering if you could just comment about why Damascus, the timing, and the significance of it. So, and could this war be leading with Syria and all that? So I'm having trouble hearing that because there's no speaker right here. But um, destruction of Damascus. about the destruction of Damascus. Yeah, the significance, the timing, and why Damascus, especially since we heard about it yesterday in the news. Yeah. It was just kind of like, oh. Yeah, well, Bill Salas was on not long ago on our program, and, and he's written about that extensively. I think it's uh, it's very prophetically significant that we're seeing Damascus in the news. And um, it's just, you know, the Bible promises that it, Damascus is going to be destroyed, never to be inhabited again, and that hasn't happened. So we know that's that's a yet future uh, a concept. Is there a timing for that? Uh, depends who you ask. Uh, I mean, there is from God's perspective, obviously, but... Um, the Bible is somewhat unclear as to when those, uh, you know, types of prophecies will happen. In my view, it, it's likely to happen after the rapture, prior to the tribulation and the rise of the Antichrist. But, you know, you, uh, I'm not dogmatic about that because you can argue that, uh, it, you know, when these things happen, first of all, 
the Damascus one's a little bit easier to be dogmatic about it happening after the rapture, but before the tribulation, because the nature of it is is pretty unambiguous. It's to completely destroyed. But other prophecies like Gog and Magog, I mean, when does a war really start, right? I mean, there are people out there right now saying we're already in World War III. I mean, when you go back and read the history books about what started each war, right? I mean, when the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated, some obscure king in Austria or wherever it was, it's not like a big bullhorn sound announced to the world, let the war begin, it starts now. It was, you know, a series of things happened and one thing led to another one and then people looking back on it said, yeah, that was the trigger event, right? So I think it's, it's, it's a little bit tricky to try to be really dogmatic about precise when does this, when does this happen. Um, but my best guess is Damascus, uh, you know, is going to be after the rapture, you know, that prophecy. Now, why Damascus? Well, Damascus is, you know, a longtime enemy of Yahweh and, and the Jewish people, and, and God promised they're going to get judged someday. So I think they're, just as they played a key role throughout Israel's history in ancient times, they're, they're going to rear their head again in the same way that, you know, some of the other ancient enemies, Persia, um, and, and, you know, some of these others. So, okay. If I remember correctly, you think the time between the rapture and the start of the tribulation is maybe a year or so or something like that? or less or something. Can you explain why you think that or what goes on in that time? You bet. So, by the way, don't you love these new charts? My daughter had uh, redid some of my old charts, <clears throat> and I love it. She's so much more artistic than I was. Nothing's changed content-wise, but it just looks a lot better. Um, so the question here is about this preparation period of unknown length that you see uh, you know, between the rapture and the official start of the uh, tribulation. It really is just conjecture, right? Um, and the more we know, you know, about world events and capabilities and so forth, the more that influences our conjecture. So for the longest time, uh, we've thought that the rapture would cause such massive chaos and be such a, you know, bizarre thing, unlike anything the world had ever seen before, that it would quickly hurdle the world in a matter of months into the need for, you know, into World War III and then the need for a, a man of peace to rise up and try to solve the problem. Um, I mean, as we look around us now, I mean, things that were once taboo and, and, and the stuff of tinfoil hat are now commonplace. I mean, you got congressional hearings about UFOs and people under oath talking about, I'll be glad to tell you, uh, Madam Senator, where the bodies of the aliens are stored, but we're going to have to do it in a private session in a skiff. I mean, that's just unbelievable to me. So unless you think that all of it is completely just a, a screen, you know, a, a screenplay and there are actors on a stage, I mean, just seeing these powerful senators and congressmen interviewing top brass, you know, generals, four or five star generals about this stuff. So all that to say, you know, I, 
I don't know if it's going to be quick between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. First of all, why do we know there's going to be a delay? Well, because there are two different events. The rapture is one event. The signing of the treaty in Daniel 9.27 is another. And there's no indication whatsoever in Scripture that those two events coincidentally happen to occur at the exact same time. They're completely separate contexts, mentioned differently. So as there are two events, there must necessarily be a, a gap of time between them. Um, the more we see the stage being set with you know, the Isaiah 17 uh, war, the Ezekiel 38 war, the potential um, Psalm 83 war, those types of things, which I know there's differences of opinion on whether those are prophetic or whether it's a lament psalm in Psalm 83 and those types of things. I really appreciate Bill's perspective on that, Bill Salas's perspective, that they're not mutually exclusive. It can be a lament psalm with prophetic implications, you know. Uh, so we just see a lot of things sort of stacking up and lining up. And so I guess it wouldn't surprise me if it is a matter of years. Now, some scholars a lot smarter than me, like uh, 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 Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, who I've had the privilege of working with many times, he said for years that he thinks it's going to be years, six, seven, eight years. Now he's looking more and more like he could be right. So we just don't know. Um, things are getting worse and worse. Until the Lord comes back, we're certainly uh, very likely to face persecution and hardship and trials like never before seen in America. Um, and, uh, you know, we could be, we could linger there for a long time before the Lord decides to start the end times clock ticking. The next prophetic event on God's time clock, on God's calendar, is the rapture. And then, then we know after that how things are going to happen. But we, we, just don't, we just don't know. So my, I still lean towards a, you know, inside of a year because things can happen rapidly. But I, I, you know, it's total speculation. Yeah. Continuing on that question of the rapture and why it's such a mystery, I um, heard that Eric Metaxas, who puts a lot of credibility into people's minds, he's invited to a lot of churches, that he said that he didn't believe in the rapture. Could you please... Um, yeah. Explain to us why so many people are so confused. Yeah, man. I called out Eric Metaxas a long time ago. He's a, just a conservative shill. I mean, he may be a nice guy. I've never met him. But, you know, everybody gets all excited whenever the mainstream media puts forth and, and, and the uh, publishing companies put forth these writers. He's written some good stuff. I, I have a couple of his books. But... I never once thought he was a good, solid, biblical, you know, guy. Maybe a Christian. I don't know his, his heart or where he's come from. He's, like I said, he seems like a nice guy, but he's dead wrong on the rapture. I saw that this week, yeah, or like, maybe it was last week. Um, but it doesn't surprise me, right? So we've got to, you know, stop watching, you know, Newsmax and Fox News and all these so-called conservative things and recognize they're all controlled. It doesn't mean he's controlled. That doesn't mean they're all, everyone that you see on their shows is controlled, but absolutely the media enterprise is controlled, and they only allow a certain amount of, you know, time for people before they either, you know, destroy them, take them off the air, you know, whatever. And, you know, uh, but as far as the broader question, why do so many 
conservatives who otherwise seem to get some of what's going on in this world and we align with them on so many you know issues philosophically why do they just disparage the rapture they've believed a lie uh, and it's a lie that's been debunked you know a thousand times i've had tommy ice dr thomas ice the literally one of the most well, between him and Lee Brainerd, two of the most scholarly, brilliant men who've studied 2,000 years of church history, literally translating ancient works from Latin that have never been translated before, before from church fathers, Lee Brainerd, um, and showing that belief in the rapture has been around the entire 2,000 years of church history. And yet you've got these embarrassing claims that have long ago been debunked by people who hate the rapture, that it was all made up in the 1800s by Margaret MacDonald because she was demon-possessed. Margaret MacDonald didn't even believe in the pre-trib rapture. That's what's so absurd about it is, you know, she, she's the last person that you want to claim as, who, you know, the one who started this false teaching of the false rapture. And Dr. Thomas Ice, I've had him on twice debunking uh, rapture debunking and debunking rapture debunking again. So just search for those uh, podcast titles over the last six months. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's clear for those who take the time to hear it. But unfortunately, replacement theologians and uh, people uh, of that ilk, they listen to their own echoes. They repeat false claims. And, you know, most people aren't ill-equipped to respond. And so, you know, they'll I get that's probably the biggest recurring email that I get people sending me a link to a video this you know this was shocking to me it turns out the rapture was a made up by a demon possessed girl in the 1800s question mark question mark what do you think well a don't send me videos asking me to watch them and ask me what I think I don't have time to watch what I want to watch, much less to watch your three-hour video so I can give you my take on it. I wish I did. Uh, someday, I, you know, when I retire and have nothing better to do, I'll maybe go back and read all the, watch all the videos people send me. I just don't have time. So first of all, watch it for yourself and then come to your own conclusion. You don't need me to tell you what's right. Uh, it's just clear that these are false claims uh, and the people who put them out there may really believe them, but they're dead wrong. It, you know, the rapture is clearly taught in Scripture. We're going to talk about it in my study through First Thessalonians. It's a biblical concept. Every century from the first century forward, there are examples of church fathers who believed in a two-phased return of Christ once for the church and a second time all the way to the earth to establish the kingdom. It's, it's a no-brainer. So, And it doesn't even matter what history says, even if there was an argument to be made that you know, this wasn't the prevailing view. Uh, it's what does the Bible say, not what does history say, right? So, yeah, who's next? Okay. Yeah. I wanted to comment a little bit on that uh, with the people not believing in the rapture. I had a girlfriend that did not uh, believe in the rapture, and I went and researched what her church taught, and it was a church in Redding, California, and they were part of what they call the NAR, New Apostolic oh, Reformation. Goodness, yeah. Have you heard of them? Oh, very much, yeah. 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 So I feel like that's one of the apostasies, um, and maybe you could comment on other apostasies that you've seen in the church, because that's one of the things in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 that talks about there has to be an apostasy before mm -hmm. 
this is that talking about the second coming or the tribulations? Well, it's talking about the rapture in second rapture, two. Okay. But the apostasia there, I don't see that as a spiritual apostasy. We get that from other passages, but there's no question that in the latter days there's going to be a a, a, a great falling away of Christians from. The, the faith and having itching ears, they're going to garner up for themselves teachers to tell them what they want to hear. Uh, yeah, NAR, absolutely heretical. Uh, uh, you know, same thing with Norm, Norman Wright. I mean, these guys that have a lot of standing in the sort of the pseudo secular, you know, academic realm and are highly regarded, they're all liberal, they're all off base. Um, I, I would stop short of saying that the prevailing tide of anti rapture thought in and of itself is heretical. It's wrong, but a lot of people are swept up in that tide. They love the Lord. They, they have otherwise pretty solid biblical beliefs. They've just been misled. You know, so replacement theology isn't, strictly speaking, heretical. It's wrong. It's unbiblical. It's not what, it's not, it doesn't handle the scripture correctly, but, you know, that's, that doesn't make it heresy. But NAR, New Epistolic Revolution, is absolutely heretical, um, and so so many they, others. They teach on the doctrine of uh, justification. From, uh, Kingdom Now Theory and oh, yeah. Seven Mountains. Yeah, yeah, the whole, again, you know, I, I'm not one that throws around the heresy label very easily, or at least I try not to. Uh, but, yeah, there's a whole movement of... Uh, associated with that of, you know, uh, Kingdom Now, or it's, uh, theologians call it theonomic ethics, uh, also known as Reconstructionism. Uh, Pat Robertson was kind of the main figurehead of that movement till he uh, passed away. Um, there are others in the academic theological realm, but it's the whole notion that our job as Christians is to make the world a better place. And when we finally get it cleaned up enough, Christ will come back. And it's 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 a it's a re, it's a recasting, if you will, of the old post-millennial viewpoint. So if you look at this chart, you know we believe in pre-millennialism uh, because we can count to twenty. <laughs> and in the Bible, Revelation nineteen comes before Revelation twenty. Christ comes back in Revelation nineteen. The millennium starts in Revelation twenty. So pre-millennial, the return of Christ is pre-millennial to inaugurate and establish the millennial reign. Uh, back during the you know nineteenth century, when and after the in the early days of the Reformation, when we so what would that be the seventeen hundreds, you know, uh, sixteen late sixteen hundreds, early seventeen hundreds, up into the nineteenth century, you had uh, people espousing a post-millennial view that there was so much enthusiasm and excitement and we were accomplishing so much in the realm of science and medicine and technology, the industrial revolution and all these things. There was great optimism about humanity. And so people began to interpret scripture as though, well, if we Christians can just get it finally in its final form, then Christ will say, good job, I'm ready to come in and step into the throne. So he was going to come back post-millennium or at the end of the millennium. Well, you know, along about 1912 and 13 in World War I, that really took a hit because the world wouldn't look so good anymore, did it? And then, of course, by World War II, it was completely gone. There was almost no post-millennialists. When I went to seminary for, for the first time in 1990, uh, you didn't even, it was just like an old view. Nobody held it. But in the 30 years since, it started to make a resurgence under this realm of, 
sort of political activism. If we can just elect enough Republicans in America, we can turn this country around and we'll all become a great Christian nation and that kind of a thing. Um, but it's, it's got uh, its underpinnings in post-millennialism. The third view, by the way, is amillennialism. Ah, meaning no. It's a, it's a negator. Uh, so like ah, theist is someone who believes there's no God. So ah, millennial means there's no millennium. So they don't believe in a millennium. They think, um, and this is more of the replacement theologian concept, they think that the kingdom is now, that the church is the kingdom, Christ is reigning on the throne of our hearts, it's a spiritualized kingdom, and uh, there really isn't a chart like this. Their chart is just Christ comes back and, and sends the, the lost to hell and the saved to heaven, and it's all over. So there, none of this is literal to a replacement theologian. So they see the book of Revelation. I might have that chart uh, in here. It would probably take me a bit to get it, but let me see. Uh, they take the book of Revelation as simply one restatement uh, of the church age after another. I can't believe I don't have it in here. That's too bad. I thought I did. Um, anyway, so they, it's called the recapitulation view of Revelation. Uh, they say the seal judgments of Revelation 6, that's the church age. Just wild allegorism, you know, it's all the church. The trumpet judgments, that's the church. The bowl judgments, you know, that's the church. Um, you know, the, the uh, m millennium, that's the church. So, you know, the problem with that is Revelation is clear. Satan is bound up during the thousand years. So isn't it nice to know that Satan's bound up today? Wow, I'm so glad. I hate to see what it would be like if he wasn't bound up. Yeah. So my question, or yeah, is kind of follow-up to that. Is that part of the uh, preterist view of Revelation, where they think that Revelation is all history, even though it says it's prophecy? It's kind of a poo-pooed theory yeah. now, but there are churches now teaching that. Oh, absolutely. And Hank Hanegraaff used to teach that. Is that part of it? Is that NAR part of the preterist view? Uh, there's probably a correlation, but preterist is more of, and I found the chart as you can see, uh, preterism is more of a extreme form of amillennialism. So they believe, so first of all, let me just mention this. Each section of Revelation, according to amillennialists, is a restatement of the present church age. So chapters 1 through 3, well, we know that's talking about the present church age because it talks about the church, seven historical churches in the first century. But then 4 to 7, they say that's the church age, and they allegorize it 8 to 11, 12 to 14, so on and so forth. So it's just this constant restatement. Um, but uh, as far as preterism, let me go back to this chart here. There are three broad approaches to studying Bible prophecy. The preterist view says everything was fulfilled in 70 AD. And they get they, their entire viewpoint is based on a misunderstanding of Matthew 24:34. Matthew 24:34 says is, is where Jesus, having just given the answer to the disciples' questions as what will be the sign of your coming. So he lays out in great detail, uh, perfectly aligning with revelation, the signs that will occur immediately preceding his return. And it's 
you know, earthquakes and signs and wonders and, and all kinds of famine and death and that, all, of, all of the things that are going to happen during the tribulation. And, uh, and, and then he says, now, uh, when you see these things, you know that my coming is near in the same way that when you see a fig tree start to, to bloom, you know that summer is near. Now, a lot of people have completely misunderstood that. It's just an illustration that Jesus gives. It's not a prophecy. You'll hear people talk about the fig tree prophecy. It's not a prophecy. It was just an illustration. When you see a fig tree bloom, you know summer's near. When you see all these signs I just described, you know my return is near. And then he says, in fact, and I'm going to say what he meant, and then I'll say the way that you know, English translations say it, which causes confusion. The generation that sees all these things will be the generation that sees my return. And by the way, that's very, <coughs> excuse me, very common of, can you grab me a water, Wendy? <coughs> that's very common of Bible prophecy. Every prophet spoke to his contemporary generation knowing that they're not going to be the ones that see it, but speaking of the generation that would see the fulfillment of it. Isaiah, his contemporaries didn't see the virgin birth. Um, Micah's contemporaries didn't see the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. Ezekiel's contemporaries didn't see the temple built. So the concept of Jesus speaking to a Jewish, thank you very much, to a Jewish generation about what's going to happen when he comes back, and yet that generation didn't see it, is, is par for the course. It's prophecy 101. So, but unfortunately, preterists take the view you know, when Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things come to pass. That's Matthew 24, 34. They say, oh, the generation to whom Jesus is speaking, they're going to have to see all this stuff. Well, clearly what he described did not happen literally. So they allegorize the text and they start to say, well, the the sun and cosmic signs, lightning stretching from the east to the west, Jesus says at his return. That's verse, about verse 30, I think. Well, that must be the smoke and fire billowing up over Jerusalem when the Romans ransacked the city. Well, that's a far cry from what Jesus said. Jesus said, when I come back, it's going to be so obvious, no one will need to ask is that the Christ? Is that the Christ? Is that the Christ? If you have to ask the question, it's not the Christ. <laughs> he said it's going to be obvious from east to west, lightning will, will flash. That's not what happened in 70 AD. So it all hinges on Matthew 24, 34. Uh, if you go to our free section of our website, I've got a lengthy art journal article, very well researched and documented, explaining what Matthew 24, 34 really says. Uh, if you take that verse away from them, they have no argument. So the preterist view is obviously not accurate. Christ did not return in 70 AD, and that's what they think, because they don't see a literal earthly kingdom. But then there's the historicist view, and this gets into people who think we're living inside the bubble of fulfillment and that all these prophecies are happening again and again and again and leading up to the rapture. The problem with that is the rapture is number one on the list. It's the next pro prophetic event. So we can't have a bunch of prophecies happening. So these are the ones that, you know, 9-11 was predicted in the Bible. And, you know, you know, all these things, they find verses that 
they can twist to make it sound like, oh, that sounds like this. And they start with the newspaper and the headlines, and then they go to the Bible. That's the historicist view. A lot of people have uh, fallen prey to that through the years with date setting. You know, the rapture is going to happen in 1988, or the rapture is going to happen in September, or the rapture is going to happen. Now the big thing is, you know, the tribulations, or the church age is going to end in 2033. Because, you know, the God's 7,000-year plan, he, Christ, you know, 4,000 years before the church age, the church age has to be 2,000 years, they say, and then the millennium is 1,000, and God's program is a 7,000-year plan for human history. Well, since Christ died in 33 AD, 2,000 years later is 2033. Could be. I'm very intrigued by it. I had a guest on once to kind of make that a plan. I don't think you can prove it exegetically, but it kind of makes a lot of sense. And it wouldn't surprise me if when it's all said and done, God's plan was 7,000 years. But I can't point to chapter and verse to prove that, in, in my view. Uh, people point to Hosea 5 and 6, and I just don't see it. But to me, it's kind of like the, the, the panoramic view of church history from Revelation 2 and 3, which a lot of people teach, that each of the seven churches represents a different era of the last 2,000 years. Again, a fascinating observation. It's really interesting. And, and you go, wow, that makes a lot of sense. But that's not what the text says. So we hold the futurist view, which is just that all prophecy will be fulfilled in the future according to God's plan in the end times when Christ comes back and ultimately makes all things new. All right. Well, that sounds like a good place to stop. 7.30. Our, our previous normal time was 6 to 7.30. So we'll stop there. Um, We'll do this again. I can't promise when the next one will be, but I'm going to try to be sensitive when there's an opening in the calendar. We'll, we'll, we'll announce one, and hopefully we can come back out and answer your questions again. All right. Well, thank you, guys. God bless, and we will see you next time.